When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreit Welcome is in, on the phone. Here we go. It is Thursday, February 18th, 2021, people. And before we get going, I just want to share the same sentiment that I did with you prior to Wednesday's show, which is that I hope all of you are doing all right. Um, I know the, the, the country is in kind of a crazy place weather-wise right now. I know a lot of you are under uh, feet of snow. I know some of you negative 15, negative 20 degrees in the state of Arkansas. A lot of people in Texas without power. And so first and foremost, I hope you're doing okay. I appreciate your guys' support because you know we've, we've done well with the show considering that many of you have not even been able to leave your house the last three, four, five days but I hope you're doing well. I hope you're okay. And as I said uh, prior to Wednesday's episode, I hope I can at least entertain you here for the next half hour to 45 minutes. The good news is I think I will be able to entertain you. And let me tell you why. I will get to all the crap that Torres is talking about to lead the show momentarily. But let me not bury the lead here. Amazing guest today, Brian Bosworth, the Boz, college football icon joins me on the back end of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. So even if you hate me, and I can't blame you, sometimes I get annoyed by myself, but even if you hate me, Brian Bosworth, back end of the episode, you are going to love the interview. We talk about a new TV show that he has been part of over the last couple weeks, uh, but also, of course, more importantly, we talk about his career, his time at Oklahoma, the Boz. If you don't know the backstory on the Boz, go to YouTube, find, pull up some video clips, but this guy was one of the single biggest characters in college football in the 80s, really a guy that kind of understood the idea of branding before branding existed. And so I do think you'll enjoy the interview with Brian Bosworth. Before that, we're going to recap some of the Wednesday night college hoops action. Not a ton on the plate, but we'll get to a few big games. One big Pac-12 win. Duke looking awesome without Jalen Johnson. Weird how the kid decides to quote-unquote opt out and Duke plays its best game of the season. Kentucky two in a row. Are they potentially a team that is going to be feared come SEC tournament time? And we'll also do a little college hoops coaching carousel. So earlier this week, the first opening in the Power 5, Power 6 that has opened during the course of this season. 
Boston College fires its coach, and I kind of just want to do a primer for what to expect from the college basketball coaching carousel, which is really going to ramp up here over the next few weeks. And then, of course, Brian Bosworth will wrap the show with an interview that is really, frankly, an all-time Aaron Torres pod interview. But I want to start with Tuesday or Wednesday night's games, excuse me. And the first one that I actually want to start with is one that I don't think most of you would expect me to start with. And that is the USC Trojans against the Arizona State Sun Devils. And I know a lot of you are like, Torres, what are you doing? Why are you leading with USC basketball? And what I would say very simply is that it's my job to cover the national college sports landscape. And so while Duke won and Kentucky won, and I want to talk about the two of them because I do think actually their wins are important, I want to give a little bit of credit to the USC Trojans, who I believe are the most underrated and underappreciated team in college basketball, frankly, maybe the most underappreciated program over the last five or six years that nobody talks about. I know you think I'm crazy, but hear me out and let me explain why I'm saying what I'm saying. But let's start with what happened on Wednesday night where USC at home played Arizona State and a game that wasn't really all that competitive late, but it was a pretty competitive game early. USC beats the Sun Devils. Uh, final score, 89-71, 18-point win for USC. And if the story was just USC basketball, I don't know that I would ever, yeah, I don't know if I've ever talked about USC basketball on this show, to be honest. But the bottom line is, as I said, USC might actually be the most underrated team in college basketball right now. They are currently at 18 and 3 overall and in first place in the Pac-12. And I bet no college basketball podcast anywhere has talked about the Trojans, even though they are atop a Power 5 conference. They are 18-3. and three. And as I've said, how about this? They've, they haven't, they've lost one game total all of 2021. So since the calendar turned to the new year, they have lost a grand total of one game, as I said, 18-3 and three overall, and I should mention that two of their losses uh, before early in the season came without their starting point guard, Ethan Anderson. They have since, uh, you know, adjusted their lineup. He's not necessarily always in the starting lineup. He was their starting point guard at the time. They lose to UConn in Connecticut. They lose to uh, Colorado early in, in, or early in Pac-12 play. And this is a team that is 18-3 with one loss in 2021, and two of their losses came without their starting point guard. You talk about a team that nobody talks about, nobody knows anything about, this is them. And again, my job isn't just to talk about the Blue Bloods, just to talk about the elite programs, but to give you a, a picture of what the landscape of college basketball is, and I think this team will absolutely be relevant come NCAA tournament time. Now, to give you a little background on who they are and what they do, the most important thing you need to know, and it's probably maybe the only thing you need to know about USC, they do have a legitimate lottery pick, potential number one overall pick in Evan Mobley, overall number one pick type guy. I do still think Cade Cunningham is going to go number one overall. But Evan Mobley, he's a center. He averages 17 points, nine rebounds, and three and a half blocks per game. His older brother, Isaiah Mobley, plays on the team. But Evan Mobley is the star of this team. And he is a guy that even though he averages 17 points per game, I think he is, one, trending towards a legitimate All-American candidacy. I saw John Rothstein talk about this on Twitter on Tuesday or Wednesday night, excuse me, about the possibility of Evan Mobley being an All-American. 
but he is also a guy that at seven feet can completely change a game without scoring a single point. He is one of the best defensive players in college basketball. I don't even know if college basketball gives out a defensive National Player of the Year award, but I think he should be in the short conversation. But it's more than just him. They have solid play all around. They have a transfer guard named Taj Eady who scores 13.5 points a game. As I mentioned, Evan and Isaiah, his older brother, Mobley. Isaiah is nine. They have a couple nice wings. And the thing you need to know about USC is that they play elite, elite, elite defense, led again by Isaiah, or excuse me, Evan Mobley, who is the center in the low post player down low. And when you talk about a team, you know, I was talking to a Pac-12 team uh, coach on earlier this week, and what he basically told me was, you just cannot prepare for their size and their length down low. And USC is currently number four in the country in field goal percentage defense. So they get after you defensively. They're a really good team. And again, 18-3 and overall. They're not going to lose very many games between now and Selection Sunday. I do think they're a team that's going to be that 3-4-5 seed somewhere in there that nobody knows anything about. Well, you'll know because you listen to the Aaron Torres pod that I think they can play into the second weekend or beyond. In the bigger picture, I also want to say this. I want to say something that I guarantee no other person in the media has said, and I think it's worth mentioning. And as I said, there's a lot of times that I'm ahead on a lot of stuff. I think this USC thing is one of them. But USC has also quietly been, I think, one of the better, more consistent programs that no one in college basketball talks about. And I get it. If you're a Kentucky fan listening, you're comparing everyone else in the, uh, the country to the standard that Kentucky basketball has, right? You're sitting here thinking, well, how many national championships have they won? How many tournament games have they won? What have they done? And I get that. But what I would say is you can't compare. Everything is not relative, right? A good season for, for Missouri football is not the same as a good season for Alabama football. Alabama football, Nick Saban loses nine, wins nine games. People are saying, uh, you, you know, what's wrong with him? We need to start looking for a new coach. Missouri wins nine games. They give their head coach an extension. And it's the same with USC basketball. I don't think people realize outside of L.A. how little interest there is in this program and relatively speaking, how little success they've had, especially relative to their crosstown rival UCLA. You want a crazy stat? I'm in my mid-30s. UCLA, USC has made the second weekend of the NCAA tournament twice in my lifetime. Two Sweet 16s, one Elite Eight in my lifetime. Steve Alford made three Sweet 16s, and he got fired at UCLA. Ben Howland made three Final Fours, and he got fired at UCLA. And USC has had two Sweet 16s in my entire life. So when I tell you that USC over the last five, six years under Andy Enfield has been one of the most consistent programs in college basketball that nobody talks about, understand, I'm not comparing them to Kentucky or Arizona or Duke or North Carolina or Kansas. What I am telling you is relative to expectations, I think they have been significantly better than people realize. What do I mean by that? How about this? Andy Enfield gets there in 2013-2014. They are the worst program in the Pac-12. By 2016, they make the NCAA tournament. 2017, they get to the NCAA tournament. They play in a play-in game, and they end up winning two games in the tournament. They're a shot away from going to the Sweet 16. 
2016 NCAA tournament, 2017 NCAA tournament, 2018. They are the second best team in the Pac-12. They almost win the Pac-12 tournament. They play Arizona and DeAndre Ayton really tough. They lose in the championship game, and they end up being the first team out of the NCAA tournament. And how about this? When RPI was still a stat that mattered, they were the highest-ranked RPI ever to not make the NCAA tournament. So in 2018, they were literally the last team out of the NCAA tournament. 2019, they did struggle, I'm not going to lie to you. 2020, last year, they would have made the NCAA tournament. And 2021, they are trending, of course, to not only make the tournament, but be a top three, top four, top five seed in the NCAA tournament. And so I bring all this up to very simply tell you how many of you knew that, uh, that, that USC is trending to have made its fourth NCAA tournament in six years, again, assuming, of course, that, that, that had there been a tournament last year, they were comfortably in, they were 22-9, and nine, they would have made the NCAA tournament if there was an NCAA tournament. How many of you realize that USC was set to make its fourth tournament in six years this year had there been an NCAA tournament last year. And oh, by the way, they were one win away in 2018 from making the tournament. That would have been five NCAA tournaments in six years. Well, guess what? Prior to Andy Enfield's arrival, 16 years prior, they made four NCAA tournaments total. They will, they will make four in the last six years and would have been five if they had just won one more game in 2018. And so I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to spend too much time on it. There's other stuff to get to, and I do want to get to the boss. I'm not going to lie on that. But I just think that sometimes in college basketball, and I'm guilty of it too, you guys listen to this show, you know every episode I talk about Duke pretty much, every episode I talk about Kentucky, and oh, by the way, I'm going to talk about both of those teams momentarily. But I just think that even at the Power 5, Power 6 level, we have to acknowledge and give credit to the teams that we don't always give credit to, right? In the, SE, or in the ACC, Florida State just doesn't get enough credit, no matter what they do, relative to Duke, relative to North Carolina, relative to Louisville, relative to Syracuse, relative to whoever. In the Big East, we talked about Creighton not getting the respect that they deserve, relative to Villanova. And so when I look at the Pac-12, I think it's time we got to acknowledge USC. Name me one other college basketball podcast that is actually talking about this team 18-3 and overall. How about this? There are people that still don't have this team ranked in the top 25. Think about that. There's a couple AP voters. Don't have them ranked in the top 25. Are you kidding me? Think about the fact of if UCLA at 18-3 and was, would they be ranked in the top 25? Of course they would be. Kansas, North Carolina, it's such a, it just boggles my mind, and, and I'm not sitting here trying to rant and rave and bang the drum for USC basketball of all things, but I just don't think people give realize the, the job that Andy Enfield has done, and to take it a step further, I say that as somebody who lives in LA, and I can tell you this program, it's just hard to get people interested, right, and I've talked about this with UCLA basketball, but there's so much going on in LA with the Dodgers coming off a World Series championship with the uh, Lakers coming off an NBA title, the Clippers have Kawhi. It's hard to get noticed in this city. The Rams with Aaron Donald and Matt Stafford. And so credit to Andy Enfield, who has built a consistent program in the shadow of not only one of the most prestigious programs in college basketball, but all sorts of teams and programs and players in L.A. where it's hard to get a little bit of love. I don't think he gets enough love in L.A., let alone in uh, let alone in the college basketball space. So quick shout out to USC. It's gone on long enough. I don't need to talk about them anymore. But like I said, this is a national show. 
it was a, it's a, this is a national show that has national topics and national conversations, and I do think they deserve some more credit. Let's transition to the rest of the day in college basketball. And again, not like a ton to talk about, but I do, I will very quickly uh, give credit to a team that I haven't given very much credit to. How about my blue, my Duke Blue Devils? Okay, they're not really my Duke Blue Devils. Uh, I kind of poke Coach K a lot. Listen, I think most of the, the poking that Duke gets is absolutely justified. Uh, you know, we're beyond the era of their players slapping the floor and, and doing crazy Duke basketball player things. But Coach K, I mean, he's still kind of annoying, right? I mean, we had the incident this year with the reporter. I think he was 100% wrong. I did not like how he handled that. I did not like when he tried to cancel college basketball earlier this season, saying we shouldn't play out-of-conference games. And it's been a season to forget. And, and, and I have been as guilty as anybody of piling on Coach K. I think a lot of you like taking little pokes at Coach K. It's fun. I mean, he's Coach K. But what I will say is... Duke played its best game of the season in an otherwise forgettable season. By the way, no different than a lot of programs in college basketball. They played their best game of the season on Wednesday against Wake Forest. They go on the road and win 84-60. Now, Wake Forest isn't very good, but they've been playing well under Steve Forbes. They almost upset Florida State over the weekend, but that's not why I want to talk about Duke. Duke beating Wake Forest, to me, is not a story that I would normally talk about. The reason that I'm talking about it is that I do find the timing of everything very interesting because, of course, never forget that what happened on Monday, oh yeah, their supposed best long-term NBA draft prospect, Jalen Johnson, quote-unquote, opted out of the season. And you guys know where I stand because I led Wednesday's show ranting and raving about Jalen Johnson, but let me just say very simply that... I don't think it's a coincidence that Duke played its best game after this guy opted out. It was clear that from all reports that he was not getting along with the coaching staff. And listen, I said it on on Wednesday's show. I'm not going to place 100% of the blame on the kid. There are external factors that are going into this season that we've never considered before. The fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, the fact that he came to Duke to play in front of the camera crazies, to play at the Dean Dome, all the things that I talked about on Wednesday's show. And it's not as though his coach has been perfect either. As I just said a minute ago, this was the guy that tried to cancel the entire college basketball season so you you can forgive Jalen Johnson if he's not into playing for Duke when his own coach tried to cancel the season himself at the same time like I said it was clear there was something going on it was clear that there was a disconnect between player and coach as I said on Wednesday's show there was questions over quote-unquote how injured he was early in the season and over how and why he was playing the way that he was later on in the season, which led to him only playing eight minutes against NC State on Saturday, which not ironically was probably Duke's second best game of the season. They take care of NC State on Saturday. Jalen Johnson barely plays. He quits the team on Monday. Oh, excuse me, he opted out. I'm sorry he didn't quit, but he actually did quit. We talked about it last episode. And then on Wednesday, Duke plays its best game of the season. And so, again, I don't want to belabor the point. Duke's 9-8. and eight. I'm not going to sit here and, and claim that their seasons turn around and they're going to make a run and they're going to be incredible. But what I will say is I do think that we've all played sports. Anybody listening has played sports or has a son who's played sports who has a daughter who plays sports. And sometimes there can be circumstances where it's addition by subtraction, 
where you have somebody that's a problem in the locker room, somebody that's demanding playing time, somebody that's bringing down the rest of the team, and sometimes the team does rally when that person leaves. Not saying that's definitively what has happened at Duke, but I don't think it's, it's, it's ironic, or I think it's unironic, really, that they are now playing their best basketball without him in the lineup and without him now in the program. Finally, what I would say, I think in the bigger picture, it is going to be very fascinating to see what happens with him going forward from one perspective. I'm not so, I keep hearing all this, he's a lottery pick and he's this and he's that. I mean, I'm not so sure. Keep in mind, this was a kid who, as I told you on Wednesday's show, he quit his high school team. We don't have to beat around the bush. He quit his high school team, went to another high school, quit that team, came back to his previous high school, comes to Duke, quits his team, and now Duke is potentially going to play its best basketball without him. All of these things don't appear to be a coincidence. Now, what I will say, he's still going to get drafted. He's six foot nine. He can do a lot of things. But I am just saying is that, you know, we have these narratives sometimes in sports of, oh, you know, this kid, he doesn't even need college. But I don't know. I think that kid kind of needed college basketball. I think he kind of needed one of the greatest coaches in the history of the sport. He decides to do his own thing. I'll be curious if it affects his draft stock. And by the way, I'll be curious if all the people who defended him over the last couple of days, oh, he didn't quit. Oh, it's this is a, well, let's see if he falls. Let's see if he, if, if his draft stock is hurt because I see these stories all the time of kids making unpopular decisions and nobody ever follows up when the decision doesn't work out, right? RJ Hampton decides to go to Australia. Shout out to Torrent Craig, by the way. He just decides to go to Australia. He leaves as a projected top 10 pick goes 22 23 24 overall um you know there's plenty of other examples Darius Baisley opts out of college basketball goes late in the first round Mitchell Robinson opts out of college basketball goes in the second round so we have a plenty of these stories where a guy makes an uh, unconventional decision thinks that he's better off not playing at all and it ends up biting him in the butt nobody ever talks about it it'll be interesting to see what happens with Jalen Johnson not going to be too critical it appears to have worked out for all parties involved. I will be curious to see what his future holds and whether anyone actually questions the decision if it does not work out for him. Final little result from Wednesday night. It's another one. It's the team that I always talk about. It's the Kentucky Wildcats, and I know a ton of you are Kentucky fans, so I don't really feel guilty doing it. But Kentucky, interesting game, I think, to say the least, on Wednesday night. They go to Vanderbilt. They build as much as a 17-point lead in the first half. Vanderbilt comes all the way back in the second half, but Kentucky holds on to win for their second straight victory in a row. Really about the third straight game that they've played pretty well. They fell down early to Arkansas and then played maybe, frankly, their best half of the season in the second half against Arkansas. But overall, just another really solid effort for Kentucky. Uh, excuse me, Davion Mintz, who of course is the Creighton transfer. I think you can, he's been the rock for this team. And by the way, for all the one and done McDonald's All-American, get yourself some veterans. Get you a D Davion Mintz because this guy has been a stud for Kentucky. I think you can legitimately make the case that he has been the most consistent player on this team. 18 points for Davion Mintz, four three-pointers on the season. He's averaging just under 10 points per game, shooting the three ball well, and I think he's their most consistent and maybe most important player. 12 points for B.J. Boston. He was up and down, played well early, not as well late. Another great game for Isaiah Jackson. Olivier Saar was all over the place, but whatever. 
still it's double digits. And, of course, Jacob Toppin I thought was awesome off the bench. When I look at Kentucky, what I will say is, and I think I mentioned this on Monday's episode after the Auburn win, there is one thought that I have with Kentucky, and of course when I tweeted it, people jumped on me, but, but let, let me explain. We all know that this has not been the season that Kentucky expected it to be, that anybody expected it to be for the University of Kentucky, and for many reasons that we have discussed at length on this show. But I do find one thing interesting. First of all, the last couple games, I've watched John Calipari's press conferences, and it has become abundantly clear to me that he believes this team is turning a corner. Now, the devil's advocate or the non-Kentucky fan would say, oh, come on. They beat Auburn. Auburn stinks. They beat Vandy. Vandy, how good could they be? And maybe they do stink. And maybe they won't win another game the rest of the year. It's certainly possible, although they do play Texas A&M, so they got that going for them. Texas A&M is terrible. But when I look at Kentucky, the main reason they struggled, we all know why. Like Duke, frankly, like Michigan State, it's a weird, bizarre COVID year. And so when you have a new team every year and you're used to doing certain things with that team to build them up over the course of the entire calendar to get them ready for March and you can't do them, I think it matters. I was talking to somebody very close to the program, had a a player in the program the last couple years that played for the team in the last five, six, seven years. And I was talking to him on Wednesday and he was telling me all the stuff that Kentucky does in the off season to get them ready for October, which then gets them ready for December, which then gets them ready for January, February, March, and April. And what he told me was it's a lot of team bonding. It's a lot of going to coach Cal's house. It's a lot of uh, hanging out by the pool. It's a lot of things that help build this team up, not to mention all the on the court work that you do in June, July, and August. And when you don't have that, and when you don't have the normal schedule, I hate to say it, but it is explainable why Kentucky struggled early. And what struck me when watching the Vanderbilt game on Wednesday night, and what struck me in just thinking about this Kentucky team in general, is one thing. Even in a normal year, where everything goes right, where you can get kids to campus in June, where you can play exhibition games, where you can have 18,000 people for Big Blue Madness, where you can also play those early out-of-conference games against bad teams to build up your confidence, it still usually takes about 15, 18, 20 games for Kentucky to hit its stride. Last year, and I've talked about this, I was in Vegas for the Utah game and the Ohio State game. They stunk in December. That same team got some confidence after that trip, beat Louisville, got hot in SEC play, and it took them about 15, 18 games, and they basically didn't play a bad game the entire last two months of the season, basically. They had a bad half against Tennessee at Rupp Arena, but they weren't awful in general. And so this is all a long-winded way of me saying this. Under normal circumstances, even in the best of times, it usually takes Kentucky a little while to get going. Now, there's exceptions. 2015, when they had Carl Anthony Towns and all those guys, they were a juggernaut from the beginning. 2012, the same. But in general, even the years that they've been really good, it's taken them a while to get going. I wrote a book about the 2010 team. People forget, in 2010, John Wall had to hit a buzzer beater in his debut to beat Miami of Ohio. They had to essentially have a buzzer beater to beat Stanford and other not good teams in out-of-conference play. It takes this team and this program a while to really get things going. And so I bring all this up because of this. 
under normal circumstances, it takes Kentucky about 15, 17, 18 games, 19, 20 games to really hit their stride. And then once they hit their stride, watch out, they're awesome. Happened last year. Again, struggled. At one point, I think they were 9-3, and three, you know, whatever, 10-4, and four, something like that. They beat Louisville. They get comfortable. They hit their stride. They never look back. Well, guess what? The Arkansas game last week, that was their 18th game of the season. And it appears as though maybe they have hit their stride and who knows if they'll look back. And it sounds crazy, but just think about it. It generally takes them 16, 17, 18 games. And what everyone's saying is, come on, Torres, you're overreacting based off one win over Vanderbilt. And I get that. I'm not even necessarily disagreeing with you. But what I am saying is in a normal year, it takes 16, 17, 18 games to get going. And that is with the confidence of beating up a bunch of really bad teams, beating up Eastern Kentucky and Western this and Central Connecticut. They were supposed to play Hartford this year. They were supposed to play Detroit Mercy this year. Those were games they would have won that would have built confidence going into January, and that confidence never happened. And so when that confidence never happened, guess what? You'll lose a close game to Louisville that you could have won. You'll lose a close game to Notre Dame that you could have won. You'll lose a close game at Georgia that you absolutely should have won. You lose a close game at Auburn that you could have won. And so when I look at this team, I really do wonder, is it possible that they're hitting that 17, 18, 19 game mark and they're finally starting to play the way that we expect Kentucky to play late in the season? We're going to find out because they go to play Tennessee this Saturday. Not sure if you heard, Tennessee's pretty good. But I just am intrigued and I just am curious. And the one thing I will say is this, don't let this team get confidence going into the SEC tournament. In Nashville. And it is funny how Kentucky fans are on social media. I, I get it. We're all on social media. We all are crazy on social media. I'm the same way. But I said something about, you know, it's too little, too late, but it's worth noting that this team appears to be hitting its stride. And I like seven Kentucky fans. It's not too little. It's not too late. We have the SEC tournament. And you're right. I mean, you're not wrong. I was talking about more in general about, you know, at-large bid, things like that. But the one thing I will say, you look at this Kentucky team, like I said, don't let them get confidence going into the SEC tournament in Nashville. Remember, this is a team that was up by four at Alabama, the first place team, with four minutes to go in the game. This was a team that was a questionable call against Arkansas from beating Arkansas, which is now alone in second place or tied for second place in the SEC. You know who they're tied with? LSU, who Kentucky beat. You know who's right behind them? Florida, who Kentucky beat. And so I'm not going to sit here and claim that the Vanderbilt game is the, the one that changed the season. What I'm going to tell you, though, is you don't want this team to get hot because they have proven they can play with anybody. They've proven that they can already beat some of the better teams in the SEC. And I'm just telling you, pay attention. See what happens Saturday. But if they beat Tennessee at Tennessee, oh my goodness, is it about to get interesting for Kentucky. All right, I do want to get to Brian Bosworth momentarily. But really quick, I do want to talk a little college basketball coaching carousel because, listen, Coaching carousel is fun, right? It's like the funnest part of this job. I mean, not for the people that get fired, and I do feel bad for those people. Um, and, I, you know, I had Matt Doherty on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we talked about his time at North Carolina and the pit in your stomach for when things do go wrong. And I think it's easy for us in the media to, you know, make fun of all these guys. Oh, they get paid so much money. But it is good fodder, right? It's good fodder when Gus Malzahn gets fired at Auburn but then lands at UCF. It's good fodder for when Tom Herman 
is out at Texas, and it ends up having Steve Sarkeesian as the head coach. By the way, Texas got a top recruit uh, at quarterback. I'm telling you, Sark is going to work at Texas. I'm just telling you right now, it's going to work. But in college basketball, it's been kind of a weird, what, 13 months on the coaching carousel? Because last year, it was kind of crazy. We thought we had a situation where Texas was going to open up, where a few other jobs were going to open up, and basically none of them did. Wake Forest opened up in, in May, but other than that, no major coaching jobs opened up. And so finally on Tuesday of this week, the first major job opened up, and I want to talk about it, and that is Boston College. And I know, I'm guessing, call me crazy, we probably don't have a ton of Boston College basketball fans listening to this podcast. I don't even know if they exist, to be honest. But what I will tell you is this. First of all, it's the, it's the first opening at the Power 5, Power 6 level this year. By technicality, it's the third because Wichita and Penn State both have interim head coaches. But in terms of the decision itself, this was the first one that really opened up in this cycle. But Jim Christian, their former head coach, is out after seven seasons. He only had one winning season. Frankly, he's a guy a lot like Shaka Smart, actually, that was probably saved by the COVID deal last year. He probably would have been fired last year had there not been COVID, but he gets the can earlier this week. I did think it was interesting they decided to fire him with three weeks left to go and didn't let him finish the season. A lot of people were upset about it. I don't know what you want me to say. Everybody knows it's going to end in three weeks, two weeks, whatever it is. I can't get that worked up that the school decided to move on now. With that said, um, one, I just think it's kind of an interesting hire, and I think you guys know about my age range, and many of you are in my age range, and what I would tell you is, for the younger people, Boston College, it was not that long ago that they really weren't that bad in basketball. Now, it was mostly in the Big East days, but the Big East was really good. When I was in college, Boston College actually made the Sweet 16, but I looked it up, and from 1994 to 2010... This was a program that actually made 10 NCAA tournaments. So in a 16-year period, they made 10 NCAA tournaments, including two Sweet 16s. So this program is not nearly as irrelevant as people in their 20s probably think it is. It was not that long ago that this program was actually pretty decent on the national stage, and I think there's a chance that they can be pretty decent again going forward. Some have said it's the the worst job in the ACC. I don't know if I believe that. I still think, one, Boston is an awesome college town. The fans will come out if you're good, but Boston is no different than what I was talking about with USC, with, um, with, uh, with UCLA. It's a pro sports town. It's a big city. If you're not good, people aren't gonna show up to watch a bad team, but if you get good, people will show up. And I think when you add in the fact that some of the best prep schools in the country are in Boston, I think this can be, I don't want to say like a sleeping giant, it's never going to be a better job in its own conference than Duke, Louisville, uh, Duke, Louisville, North Carolina, maybe Syracuse. I don't think it's terrible either. It kind of reminds me, ironically, of Wake Forest, which opened up last offseason. You can win there with the right coach if you get the right coach, and win there is relative, but you get to NCAA tournaments, nobody cares. It's like Notre Dame with Mike Bray. I always used to say Mike Bray had the greatest job in the world. All he had to do was get to the NCAA tournament once every uh, two years, and he was basically on easy street for the rest of his life. Guy's been there 22 years, and I think he's made it past the the, the first weekend three times, and, and two of them were in like the last four or five years, 2015 and 2016. Hasn't even been back to the tournament since. 
And so when I look at Boston College, I think it's a really interesting opening. Now, I'm just going to call a spade a spade and tell you what I would do. It's not going to happen, but what I would do if I was Boston College, I'm just going to say it. I'd call Rick Pitino because say what you want about Rick Pitino. He is going to win games wherever he goes, and he is going to immediately turn around a program. And I'm just saying at some point, some Power 5 program is probably going to hire Rick Pitino. So why not make it you? Give him a call. You're not going to have to pay him much. He's immediately going to make your program more relevant. And if it doesn't work out, who cares? You're Boston College. That's what I would do. I don't think the AD will do that because most ADs, as I've talked about on this show, they're afraid. They like getting their check for $600,000, $800,000, and they would rather keep getting that check and be just good enough and not take chances than take the big chance that could get them the big check and get them a promotion or a new job. But I don't think they're going to get Rick Pitino. I don't think anybody in, for a couple years is going to get Rick Pitino, but I am telling you, I, I believe that at some point, even at his age, he will again coach at the Power 5 level. And if you're Boston College, you've been irrelevant, he will make you a winner, he will get you to the NCAA tournament. I was talking to somebody on Wednesday. If Rick Pitino took the Boston College job, I believe they would be in the top half of the ACC within two years. And when I say that, it sounds crazy, but just hear me out. Because right now we think of the ACC, we think about the Blue Bloods, the great programs, we think about North Carolina, we think about Duke, we think about Syracuse, we think about Louisville. The ACC is kind of very top-heavy and not very good right now. Virginia's awesome, Florida State's awesome, Duke is really good most years, Louisville is really good most years, North Carolina is really good most years, that's five programs. You know who's not really good? Miami's not really good. You know who's not really good? Clemson's not really good. You know who's not really good? Syracuse, basically the last six, seven, eight years, has not been very good. You know who's not very good? Georgia Tech. Love my guy Josh Pastner with the shield. He ain't very good. And so when I look at the ACC, I truly believe, and this sounds crazy, if Rick Pitino became the head coach at Boston College, I believe they would be in the top half of the conference within two seasons. I don't believe it's going to happen, though. And in terms of who else could get the job, I'll give you a few names. First one, the guy that I would actually realistically think you can hire and I would go get, I would go get Patino. But the guy that I would go get, a guy named John Becker, he is the head coach at Vermont. Uh, Vermont is basically a, a mid-major power. Had there been a tournament last year, they were in position to go to their third tournament in four years. They play in the same conference as UMBC, but they had won the regular season for four straight years. They were going to go to the tournament for the third time in four years. This is a guy that does not have to recruit high-caliber players, high-caliber athletes, whatever. He just coaches people up. And I think he would be a really good fit there. He's from New England. He's coached his whole career in New England. And again, he would get those players and he would coach them up to have success. I believe he can make NCAA tournaments there. Another name to watch, Mark Schmidt, who's also the coach at St. Bonaventure. St. Bonaventure is in position to make their third NCAA tournament in the last 10 years this year. He actually played at Boston College. I believe he would be under consideration. Howard Isley, an assistant coach. He played in the NBA forever, but he's an assistant coach at Michigan right now under Juwan Howard. He also played at Boston College. There's a lot of buzz that he wants that job. And he's learned a lot under Jawan Howard, who I think has done as good of a job as anybody transitioning from the NBA to college basketball. Tommy Amaker, who, of course, is now at Harvard. He's in Boston. He wouldn't even have to move. He knows the area. Boston College, by the way, is a high-caliber academic school. Tommy Amaker has recruited high-caliber academic kids. I think he makes sense. And I'll give you one more name. 
Porter Mosier at Loyola of Chicago. The Loyola of Chicago head coach, of course, Loyola made the NCAA tournament, uh, what, two years ago? Or made the Final Four, excuse me, three years ago in 2018. Remember Sister Jean? Remember that whole thing? So Porter Mosier, he was actually uh, the, the AD that's currently at Boston College was at Loyola of Chicago with Porter Mosier. Porter Mosier is a guy, he has had success at the mid-major level. He's also been a guy that very publicly has kind of complained about how hard it is to compete at the mid-major level, how hard it is to schedule, how hard it is to get good teams into uh, your scheduling. And because of it, um, I truly believe that he is a guy that would be interested in leaving and taking that next opportunity because of the fact that um, because of the fact that that I believe that is a situation that he would be interested in. All right, that's it for this segment of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Uh, Brian Bosworth is coming up. First of all, didn't think I was going to go 40 minutes on USC basketball, Jalen Johnson, Kentucky, and Boston College opening, but here we are. But anyway, that's enough of me. I talked enough. It is time to get to an all-time interview Brian Bosworth, the Boz. Again, if you're not familiar with Brian Bosworth, go on YouTube, uh, look up his videos, his play. He's one of, honestly, one of the greatest college football players of all time. He is a guy that was, um, you know, at Oklahoma, two-time Butkus Award winner as the best linebacker in college football, and he was a guy that had a brand before anybody knew what a brand was. He was a guy who... Uh, uh, you know, just he, he was an icon. I mean, he had the 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 mohawk, he had the the bleached hair, and he's incredible. We had a lot of fun. He talks about Barry Switzer. Oh, Barry Switzer walked into my high school in a beaver coat, and it's a really fun interview. And I think that you guys will enjoy it. But that is all for me right now. Reminder: I didn't remind you off the top, so let me do it now. If you're not subscribed to the Aaron Tour Sports Podcast, please make sure to do so. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Let's get to my interview with the boss, Brian Bosworth. All right, joining me via Zoom, uh, very excited about this interview. He is a former All-American, two-time Butkus Award winner, uh, also the host of a new show on Crackle called Bucket List. Brian Bosworth, my man, what's going on? How you doing, brother? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Dude, I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. And listen, we got a lot of uh, football stuff to catch up on, but it's really interesting. You know, we were just talking before we started. You're in Austin now, but this show Bucket List really kind of just allowed you to travel across the country and get a taste for what college football is about, uh, places that I don't know, maybe you've never been. But tell us a little bit about the show. It's on Crackle, which you can download on YouTube, uh, not YouTube, excuse me, uh, Apple TV, Roku, all that stuff. But I feel like for a guy that was between those white lines every Saturday, it probably was pretty cool to, to kind of travel around and see everywhere else. Well, you know, as, a, as an athlete that gets recruited, so you get a chance to go see these universities and kind of feel what the history and hear the echoes of the roars of players of the past, 
that have played there. So you get an opportunity to, to envision yourself possibly playing there. But I'm also looking at it from the standpoint, I've always been a player. So I've always been in the stadium, kind of in the world of, of, of the athlete, you know, shepherd or shepherded around, you know, you're on the bus, you go to the locker room, you go in the tunnel, you go on the field. You don't get the sights and sounds and smells of the experience of what the college fan gets to see and, and witness. So what we wanted to do with the bucket list was to, one, educate people, because when you go to a, to a college or watch a college football game on a Saturday, that's, that's the present time. What you really don't know is how did they get here and why am I tuning in? What's so important about this? And it's the history, the rich decades of generations in the past that have sacrificed the players, the coaches, the fans of the, of the past that have brought that identity of that university to light and why it's so important, why they're iconic. iconic. And, and if you're sitting there watching from the comforts of your living room, you're actually, you wish that you were there because mm -hmm. yeah, the, you see the colors on your screen, but you, what you're missing is the camaraderie of being together. You're missing the tailgates. You're missing the smell of what is actually happening that you're watching on a TV and you're robbing yourself of an opportunity to experience something that is life altering for a fan. And now that I'm outside being an athlete, I am a fan of it. And the, the continuity of it never changes. It only gets better. It only gets, it, it's enhanced. I, you know, when I was young and I got a chance to go watch games uh, as a recruit, you look in a stadium and, and you see the colors and they're so vivid. The sounds are so loud. The smells are so vibrant. And, and, and then you see these, these giants come out of the locker room and then you, you the stampede, the, the thundering hooves on the, on the, on the field as everybody's running around and everybody's captivated, it, it, it's awe-inspiring. And as a, as a fan, to, to be able to be outside the stadium and co-mingle with your loved ones and fans and friends that you've made relationships with, and then you see the colors of other your opponent's fans are coming in. And it's not like you jeer at them. You're not like mad at them. You actually appreciate that they actually went to the effort of putting their stuff in their car and driving however far or getting in a plane and then showing up and then getting in a hotel room and then having the courage to put on their colors and walk into somebody else's backyard. And they're, they're just hoping and wishing that people are going to, Hey man, welcome, man. Come on over have a beer, get a red, get a <laughs> wing, yeah. take a picture, sit down, whatever, you know, Tell me about your school. Tell me about your journey. That's the passion of college football. And we wanted to, in, in, in this show, open the door for those that just sit in, comfort, in comfort in their living rooms and go, I'm good. I'm good. Dude, you're not good. You're missing it. You're missing all of it. You're watching it, but you're missing it. So experiencing it and educating people what that means, the, the emotion of these, these towns and the campuses and the work that goes in and the passion that goes in, you have to go experience it. But, I, I, you know, we have restricted with pandemic and, you know, the, we wanted to have more. So we, we just tried to put into a 30 minute show as much as we could to explain 
how important it is for the fabric of America to embrace and continue to embrace what I think we absolutely need in, in our culture, which is togetherness. We have to be sure. together. We can't isolate and watch it. We got to get together and experience. One of the uh, episodes I watched was Clemson. And obviously because of the restrictions, you didn't get to talk to Dabo in person, but were you, uh, if you could do it over, I know you're a sooner through and through, but uh, I'm guessing Dabo strikes me as the kind of guy that a guy like you plays off energy, plays off emotion. Dabo strikes me as the kind of guy you would like to play for. Dabo is one of those coaches that really connects with his players. He loves his players. He roots for his players. Uh, it's important that he establishes the right uh, energy with his players. And I, and I really appreciate that with Dabo. Dabo um, is one of those coaches now, you know, different where I was as an 18, 19, 20 year old man playing the University of Oklahoma versus <clears throat> what Dabo brings to the table. Dabo is, is unapologetic when it comes to having a relationship with Jesus and ingratiating that relationship into your life as a player, as a student, as a community servant. I think it's, it's um, it may not work for, for everybody, um, but as a player, I would have really appreciated that opportunity to have a coach that is that transparent that, and courageous that he would invite that, that extra element. There's enough going on with a college football athlete to just keep them busy physically and mentally. But I think by adding that other element, it brings a peace and a tranquility to the process where athletes would feel overwhelmed, where he, he brings that sense of calm and purpose so that there's a meaning by which that athlete is there at that time with that group of players and coaches to do certain things, not just on the field, but off the field, away from the, away from being an athlete, and then, and then building that as a character development for that athlete to define him or herself later in life. As I look back on on who I who I am in the future, it's because of the people that seeded certain things in my life in the past, and that past would be in the present time of being as a college football athlete, you know, at the University of Clemson playing for Dabo Sweeney. So you played at Oklahoma. And again, the show is called The Bucket List. It's on Crackle, which is available, Apple TV, Roku, all, all you know, a lot of different devices, Xbox, et cetera. I do want to talk a little bit about your career, though. I mean, you did uh, commit to Oklahoma. You did play at Oklahoma for four seasons. Um, why, why, you know, I watched your documentary that came out about four or five years ago, and it just seemed like from day one, minute one, you wanted to be a Sooner. What was it about Oklahoma in that era? They were obviously as good then as they are now, but what was it that made you want to be a Sooner when you were coming up? Uh, it was really a promise to fulfill um, that I had made to my grandfather when I was very young. He was, um, he was just a simple farmer in, in a small town in Oklahoma. And, I, you know, I was uh, I was living in Texas and playing sports in Texas. And, you know, you always when you're, you're a young athlete, you, your family comes and they support you. <clears throat> but what you want is you want the most important people in your life to come see what you do, and why you're you know passionate about what you do. And unfortunately, my grandfather couldn't do that. He can leave the farm uh, and it was working for him. So he couldn't just leave the farm and come watch me play a soccer game, a basketball game, a football game. You know, when you're, you know, a 
young tyke. Um, you can back in those days, you can send them, you know, little clippings. We didn't have social media. We didn't have video. We didn't have any of that technology. So he could just hear stories. But when I was up there visiting him and we were bonding during the summer, I would go up there every summer from the time I was five to 13 when he passed away. Um, but when I was about nine, nine or 10 years old and he had made a comment to me, you know, I'd love to come watch you play. And he goes, you know, I just can't leave the farm, but if you're ever good enough to play at the little school that's down the street, I'll be more than happy to come watch <laughs> you play. I'd really, you know, look forward to that. And that little school was University of Oklahoma. And that's when I fell in love with it because it was like, I promise I will get to that school if you'll come and watch me play. Of course, he didn't get to watch me in person. He watched me in spirit. But that's when I fell in love with the University of Oklahoma, and that was 74. We're talking Barry Switzer. He was there. He's established. That was the first year to win the national championship, one of a back-to-back, you know, 74, 75. You couldn't watch it on TV because they didn't broadcast big eight games in, in Texas. It was all Southwest Conference games. So you only got to watch the Barry Switzer show. So here you got, you know, basically the, you know, the, the invent of possibly the Boz on TV, and I'm watching this character – you know, he's much different. Yeah, back in those days, you had Grant Taft show, you know, the Fred Aker show, you know, the Barry Switzer show. And everyone had their own certain characteristics and qualities and quirkiness. But you you, you watch Barry Switzer. I mean, he was out there for college goes back <laughs> in the 70s. And he, he was out there. So cutting edge. So there was something about him that, that just resonated with me. And, um, you know, to get an opportunity to go play for somebody, a school, that I had fallen in love with as a young kid. Now you start a relationship that's much deeper than just saying, hey, I've, I've committed to a school to go play for the next four years. I've committed to, you know, to somebody that I've admired now for the better part of 10 years and have aspired to get there and done everything I can, sacrifice all I can to make sure that I'm good enough to one, fulfill the promise, but to be worthy enough to be asked to come play for a university with that much tradition and history to be just part of that window of opportunity to make an impact. Am I good enough? So there's a lot that goes into being an athlete that happens well before you get to be a college athlete that you have to to sacrifice to make sure that you're ready and prepared to, to, to be a college athlete. What was your first interaction with Barry Switzer like? Well, it was crazy because, you know, I'd already, I'd already committed to every other school that I went to recruiting <laughs> trip on. Uh, and I guess one of those things when you're in high school, that's always doubt. Doubt is an athlete. That's your, that's the shadow that, that haunts you the most. So to me, I was always worried about, you know, um, and your, your doubt is fed by the people around you that seed you. If you have people that support you, the doubt diminishes. If you have people around you that, that dwell in doubt that, you know, may not, support you the way that you need them to then doubt seems to creep in a little bit deeper so in my circumstance in that particular time you know my concern was I'm not good enough to play at the University of Oklahoma they to me were on an upper echelon and then the Southwest Conference was the Southwest Conference and uh, Texas A&M had come and recruited me hard and I had already committed to Baylor SMU LSU (laughs) but when I got to A&M it felt different it was a different connection with with AM and I've really felt like man this is home this feels right so uh I went ahead and I, and, I, and I I just got tired of changing my mind so I said you know what I don't want to disappoint myself I've committed to these people I'm going to commit to AM and I'm going to cancel Oklahoma 
So I did that. And then the very next Tuesday at, at my high school, here comes Coach Switzer wearing a, a mink coat or beaver coat <laughs> in the middle of the, of the winter. He's got all his bling on, all of his Big A championship rings, his national championship rings. You know, I, my, my high school had, I don't know, three, 4,000 people in it. So we staggered our lunch breaks, 1,000 people in our cafeteria. And here the doors open, both doors swing open wide. In, in my mind, I see the smoke and the lights <laughs> all coming through the, through the doorway. And then enters Barry Switzer and he's calling out my name across the cafeteria. Where's Boz? Where's Boz? And, you know, showing me, you know, all the bling. And I know you need one of these. You want one of these. You identify with one of these. Um, and that was my first time that I actually saw him in person. So larger than life. But it was the down-home conversation that I had with him that really set it um in reality that that he he had the right words he knew how to touch and push the right buttons with me and the thing that resonated the most and I asked him pointedly about recruitment and playing and why you're recruiting me and you know you could have any athlete any, any linebacker da, da, da. and he said some things that were just very poignant and just just hit hit home but when he said I want you to come home and play then I knew that that was where I needed to be. That so was he, the invitation I needed. So did he know that you had made the commitment to your grandfather? How did he know it's quote unquote home when he tells you that? Or is it? He had no idea. He, he was not, he was not privy to that conversation okay, whatsoever. Okay. At some point in time in the, in the, you know, later, and he may not even remember, I may have shared that with him, but I think that's part of why God has a journey, a special journey for you. You just have to trust the path that he has set for you. And that he's going to put the people in your path that's going to make that that journey come to fruition. And when I talk about the supportive people around you that that end up defining who you're going to be, he was that that father figure in my life that that was the next person that was going to um, push me in the direction that I needed to go. Sure. Uh, first it was my grandfather, then, then it was my father, and then it was, you know, Coach Switzer, you know, and then, but it was what, what he saw and how he believed in me, that I didn't believe in myself, but he saw in me, and that was one of the unique things that Coach Switzer, he has a gift, he sees in players the potential that the player has, that the player doesn't realize is there, and he knows how to get it out, uh, and he's just uncanny at that. And when you get into a relationship with Coach Switzer, it's not just a relationship for three or four years while you're there. I mean, it's a lifelong relationship. I'm very, very close with, with, with Barry. So it, it, is, it was a godsend that he came into my life at the time he did, the way he did it. It could only be um, a blessing that, that it happened the way it happened and it happened that way for the very specific reason of following the path that I was supposed to be on. Yeah, you know, you go to Oklahoma, you redshirt that first year. Let me ask you a question. You talked about a lot in the documentary. People should go back and watch that, too, after they watch Bucket List. But when did when did you go from Brian to, quote, unquote, the Boz? Because, you know, your first year, my understanding is you're just kind of a dude that's just running around making plays. And then I don't know if it was the offseason or if it was one game specific, but when did the hair start, the, the, the dye job start? I mean, when did all that really start? You know, I was all just organically, you know, sure. through the process, you know, it didn't happen as a manufactured thought. Um, 
you know, you know, people always ask, you know, when's the boss? I think the boss was always there. I mean, I, I was like that, you know, my platform, my, my stage for me to, you know, exert, you know, all of my raw emotions came out when I was on, whether it be the court, the football field, the track, whatever, uh, you know, sport I was playing, I played it with just rawness, just passion, just, you know, unapologetically all of me. And some of it, you know, I had to apologize afterwards. I mean, I'm sorry. Like I remember, you know, in junior high school, you know, we need, were down, you know, a couple of points at the end of the game. And the coach said, you know, I need you to go foul the guy uh, so we can get him at the you know, foul line so we can get the ball back. And, you know, instead of me going up and slapping him on the wrist or whatever, I went and forearmed him in the chin and knocked him down. It's like, nigga got kicked out of the game. Principal came over and said, what, what was that? It was a foul. Well, that's the wrong kind of foul. It's basketball. Foul. That foul's on football. So, you know, it, it, it was just, you know, you just play with a passion and sometimes it's unbridled, you know. And for me, when when I had the confidence that that, that I could let all of me out and I didn't have to worry about somebody judging me or saying, no, 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 no. You know, I like the way you do that, but I don't like the way you do this. You shouldn't do this. And maybe if you tried he coach Switzer was one of those guys, he just said, you just go be you. You just go be all of what you can be. And we're going to give you that platform to do that. So the, the playing part was always there. It was the, it was the external part that created the buzz, which was this, you know, you know, the smart Alec comments and, you know, the quotes and all the other stuff, which may in, in retrospect, you know, at the time, you know, be outrageous. But again, coach Switzer, he didn't put a, he didn't put a harness on us and say, no, 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 we want you to do this. And it happened so organically. I remember the buzz thing came out, you know, just with a, it was, the OU Texas weekend, my first year, you know, it's all silly stuff, stupid stuff. And you know, my girlfriend had broken up with me, you know, right before the season because she didn't understand why she wasn't number one and why football was so important and da, 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 da. You know, and then it came to, you know, she, you know, threw, a, you know, a stag, it's stabbed at my heart with a, well, I'm going to leave school at the University of Oklahoma. I'm going to go marry some dude from the University of Texas. His name mm. is Duke. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't write something more abrasive for a young impressionable emotional college football player than to stab him in the heart by saying you're going to leave me go to some other school that you hate more than anything marry some dude with a name like duke i mean who names the kid duke <laughs> in the first place and then and just you couldn't start a four star any more than that and then to come up and then to ask me to have the goal to ask me could you get me OU Texas tickets because me and my new boyfriend want to go watch the game? Come and, on, Duke. Come on, Duke. What are you? What are you? Duke, doing? right, man. So, anyway. you know, when that when that happened, it was like you know, all right, and it happened on happened on press day, you know. Oh, at Oklahoma, okay, so, okay. So across the street, we walk in, you know, my first OU Texas game, and you know the reporters come over to me and you know say, hey man, you know you're from you you grew up in Texas and this is your first first OU Texas game and da 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 da. You know, um, he had no idea about uh, other stuff that was happening in my life. He goes, so how, how do you feel about going into this first, you know, OU Texas game? I'm going, at this point in time, this is my permission to vomit all over it. <laughs> so I just decided, you know what, the University of Texas, the burn orange, all of it just makes me sick. I want to puke when I see the, you know, burn orange. Fred Akers, are you kidding me? He's a clown coach. 
we got the real coach. You know, I can't wait. So all that stuff, I'm not realizing because I didn't, we didn't have etiquette back in those. It was not like you had press, you know, class. Here's how we answer questions at the University of Oklahoma. I was asked the question, this is how I emotionally feel at this particular time in my moment, in my life. I'm going to vomit on this guys with, with all the truth that I can give him all, every truth bomb possible. The very next day it's on the bulletin board. It's on the, it's on the front page of all these papers and stuff because I'm, you know, too young to realize, mate, you mean, you're going to actually print this stuff. Sure. And it's going to be on the newspaper. So once it's on the bulletin board and back in those days, when we walk in our, in our locker room, we put all the press clippings up of the team of the game that we're playing that week. And I walk in and everybody's laughing and, you know, giving me a hard time. And I get a note from, you know, coach Switzer's office that I, he needs to see me. So I go upstairs and see him. He goes, you say all this stuff about the university of Texas. And so, yeah. You know, this is your first game and they're run, they're number one. I and mean, that, that year they were ranked number one. And I said, yeah, he goes, you've, you've opened up Pandora's box. You know, this is going to make it difficult for us. And I said, I didn't realize that. And he goes, well, just as long as you go back it up, that's fine. It wasn't like he was or anything. He just said, you got to, you, you know, you've opened up, you know, a, a can of worms here. I hope you can handle it. So I think I appreciated that a lot. Um, and the fact that I didn't feel like I was judged for just being emotional um, about what was going on. And those were my true feelings. I did hate the university of Texas. I'm a, you know, I'm an Oklahoma Sooner. If I don't hate the, the University of Texas and Oklahoma Sooner, then don't go to the University of Oklahoma. Go to OSU. So yeah. it's part of that process of learning when you're young. But in the same respects, maybe later, I wish he had throttled me back a little bit because the boss did get a little bit too carried well, away with him. And that, that was going to – I know we only got a few more minutes, a couple last questions, but for – the height of the buzz, right? Because I think about, say, college football now. College football, you could, if you're on a college campus, you can take online classes. You know, Ohio State basically lived in a bubble this entire year. They didn't go to class. They were in their dorms, dorms, the football facility, back and forth. There were no online classes back in the day. Um, your last couple of years there, I mean, you're an All-American, as I said. The hair, the, the mystique. What were those last, I don't know how long, you know, what was it like at the height when you're trying to walk around Oklahoma's campus? I'm assuming, you know, you're an A-plus student. Let's, let's, you know, A-plus student, you're going to class. And what is it like to try to get to class, to try to get to the dining hall, all that kind of stuff? Just being you, man. I mean, it, we didn't have Instagram. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have a buzz. We didn't have it. Everybody at the University of Oklahoma we were just family. So we were that, you know, my brothers and sisters were all going to class. We're all doing the same. It's the same grind. We're all have the same worries. The test, the test is coming up. Do we have enough time to study? Am I going to pass? Do I, I got treatment. I got to get to the weight room. I got all these other responsibilities. I'm walking around with a weird haircut. You know, it was, it was interesting, but for the most people, everybody's more into their own space about how they're going to get through their own day. As opposed sure. to it wasn't a, it wasn't a me generation back in those days. Gotcha. It's a me generation now. Sure, um, we collectively just lived together, you know, supported each other, you know, as brothers on the football field. You know, we all did quirky stuff. It's, we didn't have tattoos. Tattoos weren't a big thing in back in those days. We did piercing, so we had you know, yeah, you got your ear pierced, you got a weird haircut. You know, um, some guys weren't comfortable in doing stuff like that. Some guys were more introverted, and they just wanted you know, to be, you know, who they were. 
but I don't think anybody did anything to create a reaction. I know I didn't. I didn't. I didn't walk around going, "If I do this, I'm going to get a reaction, and then I can manufacture that and parlay this into that, and I can sell shirts. I can do that." We didn't have. It was Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma. I yeah. didn't know life outside the city limits, better late the state lines or outside the, you know, the, the continental United States. So we didn't have a world. We had a town and we lived inside the town of, uh, of Norman, Oklahoma. Last one for me, because I know you got to run. Do you have any, not really regrets, but, you know, I think so many people, when they think of Brian Bosworth, they think of the Boz, they think of the haircut, the whatever. You were a hell of a football player, man. I mean, I mentioned it, two-time All-American, two-time Buckus Award winner. There's been a lot of great linebackers, Vaughn Miller, LeVar Arrington, Patrick Willis, that have won that award. Nobody has won it twice except for you. Um, do, one, uh, do you look back on your career fondly for people who don't know? I guess it was shoulder injuries that really, once you got to the NFL. Um, but but are you? Uh, do you think the Boz kind of overshadowed how good that you actually were as a football player? Do you appreciate? Um, you know, do 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 people? I guess appreciate everything that you did between those white lines. People may not because I don't think I don't know if people fans, you know, general fans, uh, get deep enough into the sacrifice of what a player does and or how good players really are. I mean, they, they, they come to the game, they may be fans, they want their team to win. They look at, they look at the players on the field. They just, they, they, they might recognize numbers. Oh, there's number 12 or there's number, you know, 55 or whatever. Oh, that guy made a first down. Oh, he's our running back. Oh, that's great. So you got the superficial fans are on the outside. The players and the coaches know, how good players are because they have to play against, they have to, you know, prepare against them. Um, the super fans that really get into it, they know how good players really are. And then the personality part of it, they can separate the difference between what's, what's happening, you know, personally with the players. And there was, a, there's a time period that kind of jumps in there that all of a sudden personalities became part of being a player which wasn't part of that in the seventies and a brand. In the you had a brand before anybody knew what a brand was. I didn't know what a brand was. I didn't know the brand could get in the way of the player, but at that some point in time, the brand did get in front and in the way of being Brian Bosworth, the player. And I guess in my regrets, I wish I had gone back, you know, I've talked about the number of people in, in my life that, that supported me in a positive way that, that, push me in the direction that I, that my path was intended for me to go. And then there's others that surround you that may not have that same purpose in mind for you. And I think once I left the University of Oklahoma, I, I had had some people that got in, involved in my circle that had a different definition of the way, the path that I was going. All of a sudden the brand became more important than being the, the player. Sure. And I was too young and impressionable at that point in time and I didn't have enough positive people around me at that time to say, hey, look, you're getting a little bit off track. Let's redirect yourself back on track. The brand's going to be there. If it's there, it's there, whatever. But you don't want to lose sight of why you're here. You're a football player, first and foremost. All that other stuff is fluff. You may not realize it, but that fluff is, is going to hurt you in the long run because it's going to steer you away from you being the football player that you want to be. So once that started to happen, um, once I got into Seattle, I think that was really where the plan got off track. And when you're inside that bubble and you're trying to get the track back in place, but the brand is now overtaking you, 
uh, that was during that period of time where I can look back on and go, I lost control. And that's where I, if, when you ask the question, do you have any regrets? Yeah, I have regrets of when I lost control of my plan. Very good. Uh, Brian Bosworth, the show again is called The Bucket List. It's on Crackle. You can download it, watch it on Roku, Apple TV, Xbox. My man, first of all, I had a blast. Uh, you got other interviews to do. Uh, but if there's a season two, we got to have you back, man, because I got about literally 30 more questions here on my piece of paper. So uh, if we do season two, I got to have you back, man. I appreciate the time. Absolutely. No problem.